Hey guys, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my friend and fellow grad student, Chris Menoharan. Chris is a third-year PhD student in anthropology at the University of Connecticut. He specializes in Buddhism, Hinduism, cognitive science, and is currently engaged in researching what is called Shuvi ritual. We touch a lot of topics in this conversation. Broadly speaking, we focus on Buddhism, cognitive science, and the future of technology. More specifically, though, we talk about Buddhism's claim that the self is an illusion, the distinction between Buddhism and Hinduism, the Borzening Research Program of Neurophenomenology, meditation retreats, different kinds of meditation, the recent integration of Buddhism with cognitive science, the distinction between classical cognitive science and embodied cognitive science, and then we also touch the topic of conscious thought, the concept of substrate independence, reincarnation, transhumanism, we talk about the singularity, we raise some philosophical thought experiments about personal identity, and then we end by pondering the possibility that we are all living in a simulation. So, we go deep on this one. <laughs> it was a great conversation, and I hope you all enjoy. So without further preamble, I present to you, Chris Menoharan. Welcome to Tent Talks, a series of intimate conversations with academics, artists, and other fascinating figures with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. And we're live. I'm here with my friend, Chris Menoharan, third year PhD student in anthropology at the University of Connecticut. And we're going to have a conversation about Buddhism and cognitive science, and you're going to educate me on Buddhism. <laughs> Um, I'm gonna, I will have given you a proper introduction in the preamble to the episode, but perhaps you could just describe your intellectual history, how did you find yourself at UConn, and just outline some of your main research interests as they stand in anthropology. All right, sure. Well, I'm an anthropologist and I specialize in the study of meditation, ritual meditation, and meditative states of consciousness. So at the moment, I'm a specialist in Sufi ritual, uh, Sufi ritual meditation, for example, Jikr, whirling dervish is something many people may be familiar with as a, an explicitly religious consciousness altering um, activity, the purpose of achieving what you might call a trance state. Uh, but before Sufism was my specialty, I uh, did a good amount of research in uh, Buddhism, and also I'm pretty well versed in Hinduism. In my own background, personally, I have a lot of experience with these uh, subjects, even just extending back into my childhood in a non-academic capacity. So uh, the major meditative traditions I've kind of got a pretty good handle on, as well as some familiarity with the uh, meditation traditions that fall outside of those. For example, like you get um, Gnostic Christianity, certain pagan traditions. Those aren't my specialty, but I'm familiar with those. And you have a master's degree in cognitive science as well, is that right? Uh, yeah, it's in cognitive anthropology, so it's okay. when I want to be seen as a cognitive scientist, I'll say I'm a cognitive scientist. If I want to be seen as an anthropologist, I'll say that. Right. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's start out with some of the connections between Buddhism and cognitive science that we discussed the other week in our consciousness reading group. Mm -hmm. So there's, I recently did an episode where I was with my friend Darian, where we were talking about the connection between spirituality and religion, and to what extent spirituality can be divorced from religion, and 
kind of exported into a secular context. And I think that's relevant to what we're about to talk about. Because it seems like with respect to Buddhism, there are aspects which are ripe to be imported into the context of cognitive science, right? So in particular, there's this concept of not-self in Buddhism, and that seems to correspond nicely with this anti-Cartesian direction that cognitive science is taking. And there's also this kind of new wave in cognitive science that focuses on embodiment. And that also, it seems, corresponds nicely with how Buddhism kind of views the mind. And then lastly, um, there seems to be this new incorporation of mindfulness meditation into an experimental context. And that's kind of given rise to this new research paradigm, which has become known as neurophenomenology, which we'll talk about. But let's start with the concept of not-self in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let me, I guess, articulate the concept of not-self. Why is the self an illusion? <laughs> All right, well, when it comes to Buddhism, uh, it's uh, what happens is a lot of people will automatically go to the place and say that in uh, Buddhism doesn't consider there to be a self, that there's no such thing as self in Buddhism, or that self is necessarily an illusion in Buddhism, which isn't entirely true. That last point, uh, self as an illusion in Buddhism, that is the closest to, of those statements to being true. But the, uh, the reality is that in the Buddha's discourses, he actually was fairly consistent in that he always de-emphasized the existence of self in his conversations with uh, Brahman. So there's a, the established um, uh, elite caste of Hindu society that, that comprised one of the major um, factions of his detractors. And then when he had conversations with nihilists who constituted the other side of those who sought to uh, disagree with him, then he actually tended to emphasize the existence of self, but only ever self as something that's of practical importance, not self as something that's necessarily real, but rather self as something that's a, a, a bit of a necessary illusion. So he never took the approach of just always hardline saying there is no self under any circumstances. He was more of the approach that he would emphasize self to those who were radically against any notion of a self, and he de-emphasized it to those who were in favor of a notion of a self. The, I think the proper takeaway there that fits into the larger uh, picture that is the uh, Buddhist um, the Buddhist framework in this context would be uh, to note that the Buddha was always very much concerned with uh, ensuring that those he was speaking to knew that this wasn't a, a project in, in absolutely cohesive logic, that he first and foremost had an intention where he is trying to teach a skill set, basically. He has a, a cosmology that he teaches as well, but the main means uh, by which one has an appreciation for the cosmology in the Buddhist sense is through uh, meditation. Mm -hmm. So it's you, um, uh, you, you try it for yourself and you come to the realization that's the, uh, the approach. So I was under the understanding coming into this conversation that while there are a bunch of different strands of Buddhism, all the different strands are united by this endorsement of the not-self or by the claim that the self is an illusion. But it sounds like it's more complicated than that, as you point out. Like the Bo Buddha himself didn't was unclear as to whether there was a self or there wasn't a self. So yeah, I. Uh, when it comes to the logical issue and putting forth a, a, a strict. Uh, cohesive statement 
Buddha. Is there is there not a self? Then uh, in that sense, uh, yeah, he wasn't exactly consistent. But the way I prefer to conceive of it is that when you look at his uh, his philosophical framework and you come from the perspective that he always emphasized practicality and not getting caught up in um, uh, semantics, not getting caught up in the strictness of uh, logical thought processes, then taken from that approach, it's almost as if you can't simultaneously de-emphasize the importance of logic so that you can prioritize the emphasis of the more phenomenological component of experience. You can't uh, de-emphasize logic, emphasize the phenomenological component, and have a totally consistent perspective when it comes to self, at mm -hmm. least not when you simultaneously have Brahmins who are arguing against you for the existence of Atman or soul or self in a Hindu sense, and you also have these nihilists coming at you and saying that there is no self, there's nothing like that yeah. at all. So I think he was as consistent as he could possibly be given the circumstances of the debate that he was enmeshed in. But when it comes to the different approaches, uh, the different traditions within Buddhism, you do get some variation. Uh, there's been plenty of time for uh, different traditions to meander off into their own directions. Right. Some of them are uh, a little closer to that radical nihilist conception, and others are a little bit more in the opposite way. And it really depends on what, what part of Buddhism they're emphasizing. Yeah. So they all are emphasizing something that was already there. It's mm -hmm. just the extent to which they uh, are doing that with components. Um, so let me. So there's kind of this spectrum. On one end, there's this nihilistic conception where the self really just doesn't exist, and on the other end, some Buddhists kind of might endorse some sort of notion of the self. Let me articulate my understanding of the doctrine of not self in Buddhism, and you can tell me kind of where that understanding exists on this continuum that you just sure. laid out. So my understanding is that. According to Buddhism, the self is an illusion that is born through identification with your stream of thought. So our sense of self is bound up with us identifying ourselves with our thought. You might call this experiential fusion. So most people are constantly in this state where they're just lost in their thoughts, right? And they're just kind of pulled away by the whims of discursive thought without even realizing it. And becoming mindful is largely a matter of adopting the stance that you might call meta-awareness, where you're introducing some distance between your thoughts and you. So you're no longer identifying yourself with your thought. You're no longer kind of like tagging yourself, like this is my thought. Instead, you're becoming aware of the thought as such, right? As a thought. You're, you, you become aware of the fact that thoughts are just transitory appearances in consciousness, like any other sensation. And once you adopt this stance of meta-awareness, you realize that there is no thinker of thoughts. Most of us think that there's this kind of irreducible thinker that we have that's having these thoughts and that's creating these thoughts. But once you adopt this stance, you realize that there is no thinker, it's really just thoughts. That's all there is. And yeah, I guess so. Maybe just react to that. Yeah, well, that's uh, very much in line with the classic notions within Theravada Buddhism. And that uh, that's a pretty good breakdown, really. The uh, only places where you start to get, and this is a good example of what I was talking about with the Buddhist situation, the only, uh, that, that's such a good breakdown. The only place where you start to have problems is when someone comes at you looking to make trouble, basically. <laughs> There's a lot so of those that's, people. That's a very much... Um, the, the sort of 
approach that one uh, takes to self in Buddhism that is conducive to meditative experience. So that everything you just said is itself something of a prelude to, and so here is you go. Here is how you might go about restraining that wild mare that is your thoughts running rampant. Yeah, uh, and breaking through the illusion enables you to escape from this dual dualistic frame that we put on our experience. So we talked about this in the consciousness group, but I found this to be true. Once you break through the, you know, we're normally operating with the sense that there are sensations that we have in consciousness that are happening out there. Right, so I gave the example of a bird chirping. Like that's a sensation that's happening out there in the world. That's not a part of me. And then there are other sensations like thoughts that we have or a pain that I might have if I step on a rock that, again, I identify with being me. That's my sensation, that's happening to me. So we kind of have this subject-object distinction that we're operating with when we're navigating our world on a daily basis. And when you break through the illusion of the self, this dualistic frame just drops away in a way. So the sensation of the bird chirping can be now just as much a part of you as your thought was. And conversely, your thought can be just as much not a part of you as that sensation of the bird singing. So it all just becomes an open expanse of consciousness and there is no longer this dualistic distinction. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. So what I'd like to do is give examples. That's, as I said, a very kind of... uh, classical approach in Buddhism, you put it quite well, and it uh, is the sort of thing that leads someone, that catches someone's attention and gets them interested in doing meditation, Mm -hmm. but uh, the sort of folk who would um, challenge the Buddha when he would say this sort of thing, they're not, there's one sort of person who's going to hear this and react, oh my, wow, that sounds very interesting, so how do I go about controlling these these thoughts and how do I go about having this experience of the bird song being very viscerally uh, felt as a part of me, a part of myself. Yeah. Uh, that's one reaction a person might have is interest and curiosity and eagerness to try out whatever the plan is, whatever the to acquire some of the skill set that that allows for a more kind of personal engagement with those those observations. Another reaction uh, that is quite common especially nowadays would be um, what I think is somewhat comparable to the, the discussions that the Buddha had with the Brahmin. And this is, okay, well, what is, what is this nonsense about the bird song is me? That's just ridiculous on a level where it's simply a semantic game. You're talking about how the, the uh, neural pattern of experiencing a bird song in your own head, whether it's the auditory lobe or otherwise, that is part of you, that's yourself, that's nonsense, that's a bird song, it's external from you. You, Mr. Buddha, you're saying all this, uh, this is practical, that this is something that has real world utility and yet you, you say these, uh, these nonsense statements about things that are obviously not you, not yourself, coming from some outside world and you play word games to try and make it appear as if that is a part of you. So that was one place where um, you, where he received criticism. And then the other place would be coming from nihilists. And this, this is actually the area where uh, people who are very much invested in uh, hard sciences, I consider myself very invested in the hard sciences, but this is, uh, the other side of it is where you get uh, the objections I find coming from that approach. And that is, okay, well, I mean, then everything is just any, then just anything you hear is a part of you and there's nothing that's not a part of you. So really it's- Or everything you hear isn't you. 
Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. They preferring these absolutes. Okay, well, either nothing is you or everything is you, and this is just word <laughs> games, and it doesn't get us anywhere. I'm gonna choose everything. <laughs> what's what's the point of that then? So, yeah. okay, the bird song is you, and everything you see in your periphery is you, and you walk into the next room, and everything you say or see there is you, and the only thing that differentiates whether or not you feel it's you is if you make that acknowledgement or not, and. That's pretty interesting. That would be where the nihilists would be coming from, the nihilists that he argued with. And it's interesting because the nihilists he argued with were themselves, in many instances, very advanced meditators. Mm -hmm. They were coming from a school within Hinduism. Probably they were Shaivites or something like that, worshippers of Shiva, uh, where that kind of nihilistic thought is very pronounced. And it's interesting. I find that uh, many science uh, scientists and people who are very uh, empirically minded will often take that approach. They're a little bit more on the side of uh, 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 Shiva-aligned cosmology than they might realize, and they typically hate this What's sort the of, Shiva? Oh, the Shiva-aligned cosmology, that would be this um, much more of a uh, uh, Dionysian, almost a cross between a nihilistic and a Dionysian personal cosmology, where you um, a uh, acknowledgement of uh, reality and a, perhaps a more immediately cohesive sense in Buddhism. I don't want to get into that too much just yet because mm -hmm. it's its own huge field, but um, the kind of interesting point I make, I want to make with this comparison, there, I'd rather relate that to Vajrayana Buddhism or Tantric Buddhism because there's a lot of overlap there and then at least we stay on the territory of Buddhism. There's yeah. a lot of overlap between those traditions and Shiva worship and Hinduism, and Buddhism itself being derived from Hinduism. Okay. And, um, the interesting thing there is that there are, within that Tantra tradition in Buddhism, within the Vajrayana tradition, those are largely equivalent, you do actually have a space that accommodates that criticism, that nihilistic criticism that says, okay, well, the bird song is just then everything's you or nothing is you. There is a tradition within Buddhism, that Vajrayana tradition, that says, okay, well, you know what? You're jumping the gun a little bit, but yeah, there's a way in which you're, you're right about that. The, the main thing there is that the Buddha has always, he always aligned himself towards practicality, utility. How can I express this in a way that people will try my meditation program and will be able to benefit from it? That was his ultimate goal. He wasn't a proselytizer by any stretch of the imagination, but those who came to listen, he wanted to convince them that he was right. And this is and one of the main distinctions between the anti-Cartesian not self-direction in cognitive science and Buddhism because Buddhism has this explicit practical ethical motivation behind it, right? You should endorse this notion because it's going to lead to all these benefits that are conducive to your mental well-being. Whereas in cognitive science, cognitive scientists have started to realize that, oh, this Cartesian notion of the self is wrong, but not because of any practical or ethical motivation, but just because they've run empirical experiments and that's what the data illustrates, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, the, um, there's kind of this divide in cognitive science. Well, let me finish that point on Yeah, yeah, we'll get, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, well, basically, so within Vajrayana Buddhism, you have a, a teaching that's referred to as Mahamudra. So that's Sanskrit, that means the, the great world. Uh, and it's, or you also refer to it as a great perfection. And this is a teaching that says that, in fact, all beings are fully enlightened Buddhas now. 
and mm-hmm. that there is only one unified existence. There is only one self. Kind of similar bit of a throwback to the more classically Hindu conceptions of self. So, like, there's only one consciousness. There's only kind one, of like a world cosmos consciousness, exactly, and we're all just parts exactly. of it. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that's uh, that's something that goes way way back in Hindu. That would be like. Brahman, which is just the, the unified cosmic divine principle, overarching divine principle. Okay. And in Vajrayana, a.k.a. Tantric Buddhism, you get um, a little bit more of that. So it's almost as if you have either, you could think of them as the uh, Shaivite nihilist or as a modern day scientist saying, okay, well, this is a bunch of nonsense. Either with that approach, either everything is not self or everything is self. And the tantric response might be something like, oh, yeah, yes, yes, but shh, the novices are around. We don't want them to hear that. That's one of the more... <laughs> They're not ready. That's, that's what would be considered, uh, I'll put this in quotes, an advanced teaching. Not that It's not that every meditator is supposed to achieve this insight, and that's uh, a place you're trying to get to as a meditator. That is something that uh, it appeals more to the very intellectually inclined Meditators, the, the ones who are especially um, inclined towards needing things to make sense, you know, trying to avoid any sort of contradictions, wanting to have a consistent way to conceive of Buddhism, uh, then that approach seems to work best. So I do want to be clear that it's not that that's just the correct teaching and that you'll get to that advance once you finally have meditated for so long. Mm-hmm. It's more a matter of temperament, of your personal um, uh, spiritual alignment. They might say in Hinduism, like uh, guna, which is like states of matter, which has something of a psychological charge, like the stuff you're made up of that makes you have the temperament you have. Yeah. It could make you more inclined to appreciate this tantric Vajrayana approach, where you really need things to make sense, and you don't like this talk about a bird song being, you know, either everything's got to be self or not. If you follow that logic, okay, well, if that's the approach you like to take, then you seem to be a little more aligned to this left-hand path Vajrayana tantric Buddhism approach. Whereas if someone is uh, maybe just as intellectually inclined but prefers to, to stay on the very practical approach and not get quite as bogged down in questions of logic and uh, the extent to which something is internally consistent, then they might be more inclined to particular parts of Theravada Buddhism or Mahayana Buddhism or Zen Buddhism. So there's uh, many different places to go and that I want to bring that back to the initial observation by the Buddha that it's ultimately things being logically cohesive was never his intention it really gets to the heart of um that's just something that philosophers demand but yeah he doesn't require it <laughs> yeah his notion of truth was always a little bit more on the side of uh, practical useful truth than mm-hmm. you get in um science or in philosophy so if there are contradictions fine but this yeah. is going to be practical and you should adopt it yeah uh, the sense i got not that this is uh, by any means a, a absolute read of his discourses. The sense that I get reading them is that he has his ultimate intention is to make his case to those who are around him and to, um, if, if someone is coming at him with a particular argument, it's more for him to, to win, really, to win that argument than to present something that no one else can ever come back and and bring that case against him again. He's concerned with convincing people that his approach is correct and that this is something that will work if they try it out. Uh, he's not really looking to publish things and then you know someone else is going to come and critique his publication in a review sometime down the line. It's really wasn't in a peer-reviewed journal. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, uh, he was. I mean, the Buddha was reluctant to even 
uh, teach in the first place. His, mm. uh, his uh, students who were formerly his teachers, they were sages, uh, probably predecessors of Sadhu. They may even have still been calling them Sadhu back then. When uh, did the Buddha live? This is like uh, 600 AD, okay. around there. So um, he was taught uh, by these sages, these mystics, these ascetics living in the woods, and they eventually became his students because he was such an advanced uh, meditator. Wow. And they told uh, he wasn't going to teach anything. He said, you know, the world is too, people aren't ready for these insights. I'm simply going to, you know, live out my existence and that will be it. And his former teachers, now his disciples, said to him, no, 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 you must, you must teach. There are enough humans out there with few specks of dust in their eyes and you can clear that out. There's just some of them, but it's worth it to teach this just to reach those few. So he said, well, okay. Most people's eyes are pretty dirty, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's um, uh, kind of the... the I'm whatever. tempted to locate myself on the more nihilistic end of the spectrum. Like if I'm just talking about my own philosophical view about the nature of the self as it currently stands. Because mm -hmm. again, as, you know, as I said in the discussion section, it seems to me that not only is there this illusion of the self, but the illusion is itself an illusion. So if you become an experienced enough meditator and you train your attention sufficiently, then you can realize that there isn't even this illusion. It's really just thoughts, right? So the illusion is an illusion. So that seems to me to be definitely on the nihilistic end of things, right? Yeah, um, I'll try to uh, to argue the position that uh, that a, a Buddhist scholar might take, particularly one who's more enmeshed in a very classical tradition. They would say that uh, it may be the case, you could certainly argue that the illusion of self is itself illusionary, and that ultimately that, ultimately that nihilistic approach that you find in some traditions is correct. But uh, the, uh, an important thing to note is you might be able to acknowledge that in an intellectual capacity, but if you're not able to really go to that place in a meditative state, then it really loses a lot of its usefulness and a lot of its utility to you. And the extent to which you're able to go to that place uh, in meditation and to hold your attention on uh, an observation like that is really going to be to a big extent uh, um, dependent on what your life circumstances are. Do you live in the woods? Uh, do you spend most of your day meditating? Are you in the presence of other experienced meditators? Are you in a? Uh, do you have to, or do you have to pay rent? Are you paying bills? You know, are you worried about what you're gonna uh, cook for lunch that day instead of, you know, having eating the same simple, rather tasteless foods with a bit of tea uh, every day? Uh, have you arranged your life in such a way that you're prepared to engage with that very difficult place to be? That's very contrary to what a natural human disposition, a natural human cognitive profile is inclined to feel mm -hmm. uh, so you can admit you can you can say that to yourself okay I I, I like this nihilistic approach I, I like the Mahamudra teaching that there is just this one perfect united entity and the extent to which uh, I can identify with that then that's that's the utility it's the practical component and I'll try and direct my meditations towards that it may be more uh, conducive to meditative practice to um, to set that aside and to maybe not even worry about that. And even that could be something of a meditative exercise to suppress that uh, need to engage and grapple with that 
part where you want it to be philosophically consistent, it mm -hmm. can in some instances detract from meditative experience. So that would be um, possibly something that a classical Buddhist scholar might say. What is the, the idea that there is no self? Um, to take a very strict nihilistic approach uh, where you are very concerned with arguing that the uh, illusion of, of, its, of self is itself illusionary. Right. Um, self is something that you're going to have an experience of. So whether it's illusionary or not, you're going to feel like there's this thing, self. And uh, in Buddhism, they, you traditionally will get with those more classical approaches some acknowledgement of that illusionary self as if not real, certainly a place that the, the human mind is very inclined to visit repeatedly. And that alone makes it worth giving a category. Mm -hmm. So it's constructed and to an extent, it, well, uh, it's illusionary, but, um, uh, but pay homage to it, you know, give a bit of respect to that so that uh, you can engage with it a little more readily when, when it shows up, which is most of the time. And a relevant question here, right, is to what extent can meditation make you better at introspecting the nature of your conscious states? So this is relevant, I think, to whether we actually have a self and also to neurophenomenology, as we talked about in our mm -hmm. discussion section, right? So I guess, let me just briefly outline what neurophenomenology is. So it's this kind of new research program where you have cognitive scientists taking trained meditators and putting them in a lab and running scans on their brain and the assumption here is that these trained meditators, because they're so good at directing their attention, they have more reliable, the reports that they give about their conscious states are more reliable than someone who's not trained in meditation. So they have greater powers of introspection than the average Joe does. So because of that, if we're trying to figure out something about the brain, they're the ideal people to put into this experimental setting where we run tests on their brain and then when they say something about that they're experiencing and a certain part of their brain lights up, we know that their report can be relied upon as opposed to someone else. And a pertinent question here is, can their reports be relied upon? Someone like David Chalmers points out that, well, by attending to your experience, right, by focusing on your experience more, you are actually changing the nature of your experience. So it's not as if Focusing just gives you greater access to the experience that you are already having. Rather, focusing changes the nature of your experience, so now you're having a new experience. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, when it, Certainly, I, I agree with the notion that attending to your experience has a modulating effect on it, even if the argument were that it uh, deepens your access to some realm of experience. That itself is a modulation. So by definition, one would have to concede that if you're advocating for some sort of neurophenomenological program where meditators are going to be assessed or utilized in a scientific capacity, then you have to acknowledge that you are changing at, at the very least that baseline read of whatever their cognitive state is. Uh, but that being said, uh, one possible modulation is that there is a deeper level of access. So yes, perhaps it changes something in a way that's uh, a little bit different than a perfectly controlled laboratory setting where the variable is really very much isolated and manipulated independently of others. It might not really be possible to get that level of control, but when it comes to whether or not an experienced meditator has 
access to components of their own conscious experience that someone who's not an experienced meditator doesn't have. I think that's that's a pretty uh, that's an argument one could make, and I think that um, there's a variety of cognitive methodologies that are capable of um, you know arguing in that direction that a meditator does have greater access to some components of their experience. Um, uh, certainly, you have anecdotal reports about meditators. I know that um, Robert Wright just came out with his book, Why Buddhism is True. That's partly what got me into Buddhism. Really? You read yeah. that one? Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was that and uh, Sam Harris's book that he came out with that mm-hmm. had to involve Buddhism as well, as well. But yeah, Robert Wright's book is really what got me into Buddhism, and I thought it was just fascinating the way he interweaved evolutionary psychology mm-hmm. with Buddhism. Yeah. I found the book extremely valuable. Yeah, so... He, at some points, I think he talked about uh, sweetness, so he keeps using this, uh, uh, this imagery of a powdered sugar donut as something mm-hmm. that he really loves. And That's where I got my bird chirping really? <laughs> example, by the way. It's not an original one. <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, and he also uses the example of a, I think it was maybe a toothache that he had, yeah, yeah, and yeah. how you can attend to the sweetness, and you can attend to the pain, and you can actually diminish both, but it's not simply diminishing both. There's actually levels of that experience that he wasn't even aware of when he allows himself to be overwhelmed by the experience of pain or the experience of sweetness. He might find that there's components of a powdered sugar donut that he doesn't actually care for, but he was so overwhelmed by the immediate uh, sensory extreme of the sweetness that he wasn't really able to access that subtle dimension of the experience. Whereas if you try something, this is a common meditative exercise that you get at meditation retreats or any sort of Buddhist temple or Buddhist practice. And he overestimates just how much pleasure it's going to provide him, right? Like right before he's about to eat the donut, he thinks there's nothing more in the world that he wants. But all of the bad experiences that, you know, the pleasure lasts for like a second. And then the regret that he has and the negative feelings that he has afterwards just grossly outweigh that transitory experience of pleasure. And you get deceived into thinking that it's worth it when it's really not. Yeah, and that, I mean, bringing in that temporal component of all of the experiences that are connected to the experience of a powdered sugar donut, it's easy for us uh, to want to isolate, scientifically isolate each of these instances, the actual, all right, taste, the experience of taste, what at that moment, one moment of, if you take a brain scan, not that an MRI takes one moment, uh, but in that, what we could, consider uh, as close to a solitary moment as we can in cognitive science, uh, that's, there's the taste and what part of the brain lit up. And then uh, before you wanted the donut, what part of the brain lit up? When all of these, we do understand they're connected experiences. And so when you introduce that temporal component, that's a little bit more getting into uh, the sort of uh, way that uh, Buddhists generally would want to conceive of that experience more as a, as a whole. They do break it down, absolutely, but simultaneously they'd like to look at it at a whole. Which, which we do in the sciences also, but um, getting to the, uh, you could experience, you could diminish your enjoyment of the powdered sugar donut. And in fact, yeah. uh, a Buddhist might encourage you to do this. And I've, I have on some occasions, I've, I've mentioned this to other meditators, and I've um, had conversations with them with, with I, I knew to be a standard Buddhist teaching that yes, you do want to diminish your experience of happiness, uh, and you and in doing so, you diminish the experience of suffering later on. That's the deal. 
in Buddhism. <laughs> but I often would get this reaction, oh, well, I mean, does it have to be, you know, does it have to be like that so balanced? Does it have to be, you know, so... Why do you have to uh, diminish your experience of happiness? I've never heard that. Well, why? Because there, it, happiness is intrinsically connected to suffering. So uh, joy and suffering are identical. I mean, not completely identical. It's a bit, you know, it's language, evocative language to try and get you to understand So is it like it. all feelings are impermanent, whether the feeling be bad or good, and impermanence is the cause of suffering? So regardless of what the nature of the feeling is, if it's a happy feeling, if it's a bad feeling, the feeling is going to be impermanent. So if you become attached to it, mm-hmm. you're going to suffer. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, anything that you desire, anything that brings you joy, uh, will in the future also bring you pain. Yeah. So, uh, in Buddhism, that's something that I've found that uh, uh, one of the areas people have a bit of a, a knee-jerk reaction against is the notion of diminishing their own happiness. And uh, I won't even say diminishing their own pleasure because happiness, I'll stay with happiness because in Buddhism you're, not, you're really looking for more of a state of contentment. I think it's, it helps uh, in Buddhism to position something else in place of happiness because uh, people don't like the idea of not uh, of turning down their own happiness, even if it's for the purpose of diminishing their own suffering later on. But it's really more shoehorning instead, shoehorning contentment in there, or a sort of existential bliss that is like, you get into a discussion about if whether or not you consider that a form of happiness. Like the, if you were to say that to a serious Buddhist, a serious meditator, they might say, whatever you want to call it, no problem. I'm not going to get hung up in a debate about what happiness. If your definition of happiness is this blissful um, state of equanimity and contentment that is uh, bereft of desire and simultaneously bereft of suffering, then, uh, yeah, yeah, then um, no problem. And how do you achieve this state of contentment? It involves becoming content just in resting awareness, regardless of what the contents of consciousness are. One analogy that I got from this meditation app that I found helpful is this analogy of the sky and clouds, where the sky is consciousness, just awareness, and the clouds are whatever contents that happen to be occupying your experience at any given moment in time. And one thing the dude on the meditation app has emphasized is that you need to become, the, first of all, the sky is always there, and you need to become just content resting in this awareness, regardless of whether there are bright clouds there, regardless of whether there are dark clouds there, the clouds themselves are impermanent. So if you can just become, and if you cling onto them, again, you're going to suffer because they're going to go away. But if you can come just content existing as the sky, so to speak, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter what clouds are there because now you've achieved a stable source of well-being, kind of. Mm-hmm. Do you like that analogy? Do you yeah. think it oversimplifies things? Yeah, no, that, that's a good way to put it. That's the sort of um, one of those approaches that helps with uh, uh, meditative efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, staying with the, or, or kind of moving on from the donut analogy, you could take, yeah. I don't know if you mentioned something like this in the book, but I, uh, when I was talking about um, like the tantric approach, are you a meditator in the woods? Do you, are you living in a community of meditators? So, is it appropriate for you to be really embracing this particular, considered a difficult teaching, even by the tradition that embraces it? Um, the foods that such a person would eat, uh, that one would eat on a meditation retreat or in a temple, would be very simple. So they're specifically going to avoid, you're not going to have any very sweet 
or savory substances. It's going to be simple meals. And part There's not going to be any Mickey D's? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm afraid not. Uh, part of the intention there would be to um, encourage you to find the, the subtle components of the experience of eating something very plain. So just mm. some plain, unseasoned rice. Eating that, there's a, there's a, I mean, it's starchy. There's plenty of calories in there. There's definitely stuff in there. And There's stuff can, to attend to. <laughs> yes, yes, you can appreciate it in manners that you might not typically appreciate if you're uh, used to a higher degree of, um, of uh, culinary stimulation. Right. So you've talked about how when you, you want to become less attached to the sensation of eating the donut or other sensations that cause you suffering. And it's kind of paradoxical, right? Because it's by, like, say I stub my toe and I have a pain. Doesn't Buddhism say that in order to have the pain affect you less, you have to actually attend to it more. So you become just completely focused on the pain and just kind of have uh, bare attention to the pain. And by doing so, you actually become less attached to the pain. So it's kind of a paradox. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the pain all all it's asking for really is your attention. The pain doesn't. Uh, I'm I'm anthropomorphizing the pain as if it has desires, but it's not asking for you to cry out and say "ouch." It's not asking for you to grab your toe and jump around after stubbing it. It's just asking for your attention. So you can provide that and uh, and satisfy the pain through attention. It's going. It, right. it changes the nature of the experience you're having. So, because now it's just like an object that you happen to be attending to. It's not a part of you, right? It's just yes, some yes. sensation that you're observing. Yeah, you could imagine someone is jumping around trying to get your attention and you're a meditator sitting there and, and if they're trying to distract you from your meditative practice and you simply turn your head and look to them, well, it won't be terribly satisfying if that's all they were able to get you to do. They're trying to get you to stop meditating over here and then all you do is simply turn your head a few degrees and watch them and you've now, you the dancing fool trying to distract this meditator has become the object of their meditation. Well, it looks like you haven't won, Mr. Mm -hmm. Dancing Fool. The meditator appears to have come out victorious. That would be the, uh, the approach there. Yeah. So yes, attending to the pain is, um, uh, and they, they, this is something that you hear on any meditation retreat. You attend to your thoughts. You attend to the discomfort mm -hmm. of sitting. Uh, you don't need to ignore it. It's not the goal to ignore it. It's the goal to simply experience it as the uh, same continuum of experience that you're always having. So as I told you, I'm about to go on my first meditation retreat at the end of May, and you've already been on one. Perhaps you could say something about the experience that you had on that extended meditation retreat. Oh, personally, I uh, I really despised the Vipassana <laughs> meditation it scared retreat. scared me, bro. <laughs> it, it was not for me at all. Uh, well, some people do uh, get scared. Some people, it would be called a kundalini breakthrough, actually. It would Whoa. sound, the descriptions of these would be like, it seems as if someone got slipped LSD or something and they have a freak out. Uh, <laughs> I've never personally known anyone who had anything like that. But my experience was that... Um, I found that, and this might have more to do with me being an anthropologist than anyone else, uh, th there's a vow of silence that's typically taken on these retreats, and it was right. my feeling that when people are quiet, they're so much louder, and it was deafening to me. <laughs> I really prefer meditation in a solitary environment, which is, uh, is totally acceptable within Buddhism. That would just be part another temperamental issue. Some people do better in a communal meditation setting. Some people do better in a solitary setting. Some people kind of like feed off of the silence, but others are just 
bothered by it. Mm-hmm. Like it was kind of an energy thing. You just kind of sensed the meditative energy and that was distracting it to you. It was more, it wasn't even like the meditation itself was quite fine. It was more everything besides meditation, even just walking to the meal hall and all right. that. There, I mean, one tiny glance communicates so much. The way people move and walk communicates so much. I've been trained to never stop watching for those things. And it was... Because uh, you're an anthropologist. Yeah, it was very distracting. I really couldn't focus. In the meditation hall, I was able to focus and meditate, but I couldn't really maintain a conducive uh, meditative state surrounded by people. Um, Do you think just, that's because you were succeeding in the practice? Like you had become so focused that you're just picking up on all these little nuances of people's behavior. So you're... You're, you being bothered by it is actually indicative of you succeeding at the meditation? Well, I, I think I was succeeding in anthropology. I don't know <laughs> if I wouldn't necessarily equate that to succeeding at Buddhism right. uh, or Vipassana meditation. Um, probably the Buddha would chastise me for not being able to put that out of mind and say, don't worry about them. You're here to meditate. Right. You, you put that out of mind. And, but um, I don't necessarily want... I don't really want to cultivate putting that out of mind when I have the opportunity of solitary meditative practice open to me. Mm-hmm. There's a, within Buddhism, this is more of a cultural issue, but there you do get um, there's uh, different sorts of meditation and there's conversations about which forms are more uh, conducive to meditative states and which kind of meditative states people should be going for in the first place. Think Let's that, talk about that. Let's uh distinguish between different kinds of meditation because we haven't even oh, really defined yeah. what okay. meditation well, is, is and the different varieties of meditation sure, within yeah, Buddhism. Yeah. That'll be good. I think I feel like I'm, I might sound a little too mystical to some listeners, <laughs> especially more scientifically minded ones who might want to write me off. Well, hopefully we'll get into some cognitive science yeah, too. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. So scientifically speaking, um, there's a couple different takes on meditation, um, but the approach I most like to, to describe to people uh, breaks meditation up into three main categories. Uh, now, this would not be. This is cognitive science. I'm talking about at this point. That's assessing many meditative traditions, Buddhism being one of them. So at this point, you could say that I'm in the territory of cognitive science, and that would be that these three types of meditation that I like to talk about are uh, F A O M and uh, L K. I don't usually see the last one abbreviated. You just so F A is focused attention. And then OM is open monitoring, and then the final one is loving kindness meditation. You mm. see these, uh, the terminology vary here and there. The literature isn't quite uh, consolidated into a, a hard canon as you get like in some other fields. Mm-hmm. But uh, the first one there, focused attention meditation, that would be if you have, say, something you're following. So do you have a mantra? Are you repeating a mantra? Well, there's uh, a... Uh, some specific components, some sensory components that you're um, focusing on there. Maybe there's something visual, you're looking at a flame, a candle's flame, and you're meditating strictly on that, and you're trying to maximize the influence and the importance of just that visual experience and perhaps whatever residual warmth you feel from the candle's flame. Uh, If you're doing a mantra, you're focusing obviously on the sound of the mantra, but also on the tactile sensation as you repeat it in the area of the throat, larynx, esophagus, etc. So the basic breathing meditation where you're instructed just to focus upon your breath and do nothing more would be an example of this kind of meditation. Yeah, yeah. So focusing on the breath would be an example of a focused attention meditation. I do want to add that that is a good example of focused attention meditation. But in my experience, you usually see breath 
uh, following as something that is certainly common in vipassana meditation and in I mean most Buddhist meditation disciplines, but it's often used as uh, as something of a stepping stone to other forms of uh, meditation. Right. Um, certainly, an experienced meditator could follow the breath and be a very advanced meditator and not need to really try any other kind of uh, meditation. Uh, but uh, I do typically see that as something that's that helps because you're going to breathe one way or another, and it's just something that's there to attend to. Uh, but even within vipassana meditation, you will definitely uh, are going to you get the instruction and you get the the sense as you continue that they're looking for a little more maybe of an open monitoring situation and the focusing on the breath is a step stepping stone to that. Mm-hmm. So open monitoring meditation would be where you're not trying to isolate any one uh, sensory experience. And I say one with uh, the stipulation that uh, the candle was, there was the warmth and the visual component. The mantra, there's the tactile component and the auditory component. So right. we're not necessarily talking about individual senses so much as a... Like an individual object. Yes, a relatively bounded uh, object of experience. Mm-hmm. So uh, with open monitoring meditation, you're trying to not prioritize any over any other. You're trying to take in all of your uh, your sensory experience simultaneously and simply monitor it openly. So just see it for what it is. Experience it in the moment. This so is, with no agenda whatsoever. You're not, yeah, you don't yeah. intend to direct your focus in any manner. You're just letting sensations arise and just resting in awareness. So exactly, exactly. And ultimately, the only real difference it has with focused attention meditation is that you are opening up that experience to all senses. In Buddhism, there's six senses. The thought is, so we all are familiar with the typical five senses. In Buddhism, thought is the sixth sense. So mm-hmm. you open it up to all six of your sentences that you're going to monitor openly. And when you hear uh, meditators talking about being in the moment, being completely in the moment, then this is a little more aligned to what cognitive scientists refer to as open monitoring meditation. Hmm. And uh, it's not like one, it's easy to, to fall into this trap of thinking open monitoring is this magnificent form, that's for the good stuff, that's the real stuff, and then focused attention is this dinky little thing to get there. It's definitely not the case at all. Uh, what I specialize in at the moment, Sufism, there's the deeper meditation. And in deeper meditation, uh, you recite the letters of the name of Allah. So there's it's something of a mantra component there. And by the end of that, you're reciting H. So it's just Ha. So uh, listeners won't see this, but I'm uh, I'm rocking my body back and forth, and I'm yeah. going to say so. Ha, 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 and hats fly off people's heads. It's like I'm headbanging, like in a Sufi Sufi headbanging sort of situation. Right. Hats fly off heads. Maybe glasses fall off faces, and that sort of thing. And you're saying. This is a form of meditation. Yes, this would be a form of okay. uh, focused attention meditation. Oh, and it's breath. They're following the breath. I mean, there's a there's a doctrinal component there. H, they're, they're aware that H, this is just, huh, this is just breath. Mm-hmm. It, within Sufi doctrine, they understand this final letter of Allah, at least to them, is representing life of the universe, the breath of reality, uh, the Allah breathing life into all existence. So, uh, but it's a little more intentional in that case, yeah, as opposed so, to just letting your breath come as it comes and being aware of it. You're yeah, actually yeah. kind of intentionally doing something and focusing on it as you're doing it. Yeah. So there's the breathing component, and certainly with breathing, there's a physical, uh, the physical component, the rise and fall of the chest, as any uh, mm-hmm. any uh, one who studied vipassana meditation would be aware of. But then they're actually um, 
you know, violently even, depending on how much they get into a trance state, are rocking their bodies back and forth. That would be a form of focus attention meditation, uh, a rather one that you can progress down quite a far path and achieve uh, uh, state trance states of consciousness. That's one of the things I'll what be trying trans- to assess in my research. What is a trance state of consciousness? Uh, trance uh, trance states. This is something that. Uh, to quantify it cognitively, you probably would need, you know, uh, electrocardiograms or um, MRI scans or whatnot. But anthropologically speaking, a trance state would be an altered state of consciousness typically induced uh, by uh, ritual, often ritual dance or ritual meditation. Um, um, in some cases, there'll be the assistance of various psychoactive drugs to induce that. But a, a a typical form of consciousness typically that's usually associated with some sort of religious or spiritual practice it may involve possession uh it may also involve release like possession of some other identity a demon a voodoo spirit or release of one's own identity often with out of bodies experience would be an example of a trans state of consciousness yeah yeah sure if you're having some sort of um, maybe like an astral projection state or something you could consider trans state it's um, uh, often associated maybe with musical performance and uh, it is maybe you empty the self so that something can enter whether that's a law or some other kind of spirit but uh, the, that um, deeper meditation be a form of uh, very rigorous focused attention meditation so uh and also mantra, you can go very far along mantra. There's famous accounts of maybe sadhu. Sadhu is like an Indian aesthetic world renouncer. Uh, there's accounts of sadhu maybe living in mantra for most of their lives. So they're, they're repeating this mantra for hours and hours every day, days out of years, um, over and over and over endlessly. So certainly you can go a long way. I don't want to make one of these kinds of meditations seem like it's more serious than another. What about lo- love and meditation? Yeah, let's let's get to that one. So, loving kindness meditation hasn't really received as much research as uh, the others in uh, in terms of like physiological measurements, but it has gotten. So this is the kind of meditation that I'm going to be doing on the mm-hmm. retreat that I'm going on in May. Yeah, love this is interesting. It's gotten more airtime in uh, medicine, in uh, medical fields, and public health. There's been programs of. Um, uh, putting convicted felons in prison through these loving kindness meditation programs. Also, you get more of the, the, the other sorts of meditation as well, but this one is, has been especially uh, pursued in those, those realms. And this is something that comes out of the, the huge emphasis on compassion and directing one's intentions towards compassionate thought that you get in Buddhism. And uh, certainly there was a lot of practice back in the 70s with this sort of meditation, with an emphasis on this loving kindness and openness. The intention is that you can basically manually restructure your uh, baseline mode of consciousness to be something that is more conducive to empathy, to sympathy, to altruism, and to compassion. And that is... Uh, it very much fits with the Buddha's original teachings because it's there's a practical focus there. You're trying to achieve something. You're trying to mm-hmm. achieve some sort of end. You're trying to put something out. You're trying to internalize something so that by internalizing it, the world becomes a little bit more like that place you're trying to produce. And it's systematic, right? So you start by thinking about someone that you love, and then you kind of move along the continuum until you get to someone you hate. So you start by thinking about someone you love and you wish well upon them, then you think about someone who's just an acquaintance who you kind of 
don't feel good or bad towards and you wish well upon them and then you move slowly towards your worst enemy and once you get to that worst enemy you're be more disposed to wish well upon them than you would have been had you thought about them first but isn't that how it usually proceeds i've just done some elementary research into mm-hmm. how it's going to work when i actually get to the meditation and i've heard this it kind of proceeds systematically in that way yeah, by thinking that's... about different figures in your life and the attitudes that you have toward them yeah that's uh, there's a process to it the analogy i often hear is of um, cultivating a plant so planting a seed of compassion in a place where it's easy uh, if you're uh, thinking in terms of a, a loved one, then it's easy to feel compassion for them, and then you slowly extend that outward, right. as you described. It's, um, what, what I've always been fascinated by that is, um, is a very, it, it's, it's very systematic. In a way, it's actually, it's m- perhaps more easily characterized as systematic and procedural than the other forms of meditation, mm-hmm. because the other forms are, there's not, there you can deal with issues that come up oh guru i you know i'm i'm just struggling with my my sitting posture oh guru i get distracted when i hear the other folks tummies rumbling you know you deal oh oh, guru i can't focus on my breath for more than 30 seconds without going insane (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah you have these these um problems that come in that it's you know they'll address them in teaching but uh it's not somewhat, you don't really have this prescribed plan. Well, what do I do? You know, what do I think? The loving kindness meditation is more procedural in that you do typically get instruction of here's what to think about when you feel that you've sufficiently reached this point where you're actually feeling some sort of appreciation for, you know, that teacher you despised in elementary school. Then you progress on to the next level. Um, so out of these three kinds of meditation that you just outlined, is there one that you found to be the most useful or the most conducive towards your well-being? Yeah, well, my meditative practice is primarily what I will do is I start with focus attention and will use that as a stepping stone to for open monitoring. Mm. Um, I personally, open monitoring is what works best for me in uh in, in attending to experience in an immediate sense uh, focused attention I, I use to get there what I do is I'll cycle through all the senses so whatever I'm uh, whatever you, you hear whatever you see in your visual field whatever you feel you can even uh, just kind of the taste of the ambient air uh, and then eventually just uh, synchronize all of that into an open monitoring place so it's kind of like um if you were to play music, you know, you do your exercises first, you do the left hand, you do the right hand, you do some rhythm exercises, maybe you do a little bit of warm-up with pitch or, or ear training, solfage, that sort of thing. And then you you play, you know, after you've warmed up. So that's the way I personally do it. Um, uh, most focused attention meditation traditions are just that, traditions where it's uh, open monitoring is a little bit hard for there to be some kind of concrete plan that you're following it just is the experience of all that's around you focus attention you know if you're making um uh, some sort of buddhist imagery symbolism in the sand and you're going to meditate on that like i mean you have to know how to produce that or if you're going to have a mantra you have to know your mantra and uh, you have to know how to say it so there's tends to be more of a more specific tradition there, like the Sufi meditation is very specific tradition. There's a lot of singing. There's a lot of things you have to memorize. 
So do you have a procedure? Do you have a daily meditative practice that you do? Not necessarily daily, but when I'm going to do a seated meditation or a walking meditation, I'll usually use that focus attention and open monitoring. But I also like to think of, I use the music example intentionally. I, I am a musician and I, I what do you consider play? that a meditation. I play uh, violin and classical guitar. Okay. So the violin, I haven't personally found to be great for meditative states of consciousness. It's, a, it's an energetic instrument. It's active. Hmm. It's sociable. It mm -hmm. wants to be heard. <laughs> uh, but the classical guitar, I don't have numbers to back this up, but in my personal experience, it seems that more classical guitarists eventually become Buddhist monks than any other uh, instrument uh, player, any other type of musician. <laughs> Once I, they realize they're not going to become inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, yeah. they, really, they realize that you might as well just become a monk at that point. Yeah, I've met a couple of them, and it makes sense. You know, it's very solitary. It's very independent. It's quiet. Uh, it's the sort of thing, and certainly the repertoire for that instrument is, tends to be quite uh, contemplative quite uh, conducive for meditation. I mean, I'll play that sort of thing and people will say, oh my God, it's wow, it's so uh, calming and beautiful. Oh, it just makes me want to fall asleep. And I think that was, well, that was a masterpiece of, you know, exciting Andalusian. Hey. And we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. back with Chris. He is slowly injecting me with the drug of Buddhist enlightenment. <laughs> um, so yeah, you wanted to uh, yeah, offer so some reading materials for any listeners yeah, we talked that may about, be interested? Uh, Robert Wright's book, uh, Why Buddhism is True, which is a pretty good introduction Great to book. Buddhism for uh, those who are scientifically minded. Um, I, That's how I found my way to Buddhism. I really didn't know anything about Buddhism a year ago, and I read a, this book by Robert Wright, and it just piqued my interest, and I was off to the races. And now I'm, I'm starting to run. <laughs> but yeah. But. Yeah, so I would uh, suggest a good place after that, or if someone is less scientifically or philosophically inclined, maybe you don't have a background in evolutionary sciences or cognitive science. Um, and you're a little more comfortable with, say, like a traditional humanities approach or a historical approach, maybe anthropological approach, then there's a lot of decent literature out there um, on actually just um, basically breakdowns of canon texts, canon Buddhist or Hindu texts. There's mm -hmm. uh, Dhammapada, I can't recall the author of this one. But really, I want to make more of a point, not about specific books, but um, about the usefulness of a lot of these English language translations that you get. Basically, most English language translations that you would find at any major bookstore with breakdowns, like with maybe explanations, right. tend to be really quite good, quite accurate representations okay. of the source material. And I found it to be the case, this is a little more of an anthropological observation, that people are a little bit reluctant to um, to read those as if they, as if because it's not in the original language, it's not really authoritative, or they don't really know who this person commentating on it is, so they don't necessarily... Right, they just assume that this must be a misrepresentation of the Buddha's actual views. Yeah, yeah. I've, Whereas that's not the case. I've had the experience a few times where someone knows a startling amount about Buddhism or Hinduism. Uh, maybe they read, say, uh, 
an annotated copy of the Bhagavad Gita. Mm-hmm. And this is, and they know quite a bit, but they're constantly, you know, uh, qualifying, saying, no, you know, I don't really know, and I, I wouldn't be able to read it in any original thing. or Just because I, they haven't interacted with the original yeah. text of Buddha or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, uh, but it's really, uh, I haven't read any Pali canon texts of Buddhism, but um, uh, the what you typically get in these in the English language versions is pretty good for the most part. So just actually reading uh, English translations of Buddhist literature is a pretty good place to go, and if you have annotations, that's also tends to be pretty useful. But um, yeah, that's a nice uh, that's a good area to a good direction to go in, I think. And there's a lot of um, uh, very high quality material, I suppose. Not in no small part due to the psychedelic revolution, but there's a lot of good material out there on the. Uh, Is there any subject. particular book that comes to mind on this topic? Um, oh my gosh, I can't remember the author, but it's, it's called Tantra. It's a book on Tantra, and I've got the co- cover perfectly in my head, and uh, it's it has like this this mandala on it, and it's really uh, quite taking visually. But that's an example, of just a very scholarly text um, that uh, really goes into. The practical and the philosophical components of Tantra and what Tantra is, aka similar to Vajrayana Buddhism. Tantra is something that's uh, something in Hinduism and Buddhism. It's kind of a, a series of practices that each of these traditions has sort of taken on. So that's that would be an example. And would uh, those those tend to be quite uh, cohesive? Is there a first thorough. book that you read that really introduced you to uh, well, Buddhism? I wouldn't really be able to remember. Uh, I was. Um, How long have you been into Buddhism? Well, my mother is Buddhist, oh, right. and my father. It, now he's kind of just apathetic religiously, but he was a Hindu for most of his life. Um, uh, and when he came to America, he's continued to practice Hinduism for a while. Hmm. So I was actually raised Roman Catholic, but I was taken to Hindu temples quite frequently. So I kind of had a dual religious, sort of multi-faith upbringing. And my mother's Buddhist texts, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you when I first started reading them as soon as I was able to. She had quite a few titles there. And then uh, same with, with Hindu texts. I never really had to ever buy a book on Hinduism or Buddhism until I was buying scholarly academic texts because I already had. It was already a part of your life. It was, it was already there, yeah. And also I'd go to India many, many times when I was younger and we still had a lot of family over there. So a lot of it was just um, actually being in India, going to temples and learning from uh, swamis and priests and gurus. That's so Not that I had a personal guru, but you know, my father would take me to the temples and right. give lectures and that sort of thing. So shall we make a detour into cognitive science? Yeah, yes. Uh, so we should talk about that. So uh, the intersection of cognitive science and Buddhism is uh, pretty fascinating. I spent a lot of time during my master's on that subject. And uh, when it comes to that intersection, I think a good way to frame the, uh, the discussion is to point out that you have uh, some camps, some easily identified camps mm-hmm. uh, within cognitive science and Buddhism, and there is one camp that is really quite opposed. They find Buddhism to be, well, this is more religious than people would like to admit. This is mystical. This is not scientific. Yes, certainly there's some interesting insights, and whenever you have fi- find a group that's very concerned with conscious experience, yeah, we're going to find it fascinating, but let's not uh, jump the gun and uh, really start trying to integrate 
Buddhism or Buddhist practice into cognitive science. Let's stay empirical. Let's stay scientific. Let's take all of this with several inordinately large grains of salt. And so these people in this camp are very much against interaction between cognitive science and Buddhism. It's not so much that they're against interaction, but they're for staying very much rooted in empirical scientific methodology. Right. They're not really interested in um, shifting paradigms or um, looking, you know, exploring uh, new realms of conscious experience that perhaps are especially difficult to assess scientifically. Maybe they don't. Uh, they they feel that that could be something interesting down the line, but we either don't have the methodology to assess it, or it's too expensive to, you know, do a portable MRI on advanced meditators in the field where they're not surrounded right. by sterile laboratory walls. So would people or, in this camp be against neurophenomenology, generally speaking, or not? Yeah, probably advocates of it. <laughs> probably there's some flexibility within neurophenomenology mm-hmm. that gives you a little bit of leeway to. Uh, to adopt different perspectives, but for the most part, I'd say they're probably not terribly fond of it. Okay. So you've got the other side of the camp, and this, uh, where you get cognitive scientists publishing in journals, and the language is so mystical that you might think that you were reading some sort of 1977 treatise on <laughs> psychedelic experience. Uh, uh, you you can find that to be the case with some of these, and I've read a few of these, and I've wondered, wow, how did how does this even get in an academic journal? It's it's really mostly right. a, scientific peer-reviewed journal. It's an endorsement of Buddhism. So that's the other far side of the spectrum, where people do seem to be throwing empirical methodology to the wind and are okay. very much advocating for an integration of Buddhism into cognitive science. I'd be hesitant to even call it science anymore. I mean, if you're really discarding empirical methodology. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just what science is. Yeah, that's that's the very far extreme end. Most of this conversation happens in the middle as, as mm-hmm. these things go. So you'll get folk who are looking to incorporate some components of either Buddhist theory or Buddhist practice into cognitive science. And then right. you'll have those who are maybe resisting that a little bit. And um, uh, the direction at the moment is definitely going towards some mild integration. Mm-hmm. And I tend to see that I, I tend to divide that up into the practice and the theory so the theory would be like you mentioned way way early on uh, like eye tagging like a potential eye tagging right. mechanism that we've uh, talked about so this would be one way in which you can take established buddhist theory established buddhist philosophy and try and incorporate it into cognitive science or try and produce your own models for how things are occurring maybe in ways that we just hadn't thought of before that the buddhists had their own language to describe and it's, I think it's worth noting that when we're talking about incorporating Buddhism into cognitive science, we're not, talk, we're not talking about incorporating every aspect of Buddhism into cognitive science. We're divorcing the empirical strands of Buddhism from the supernatural component, right? From beliefs in reincarnation and the rest. So I imagine there would be very few, if any, cognitive scientists who say, oh yeah, we should take the reincarnation stuff and incorporate that into our methodology as well. They're going to say, no, Let's take the mindfulness meditation training and see if we can do something with that. Yeah, yeah. The the explicitly mystical spiritual dimensions of Buddhism, like reincarnation, uh, those you don't typically really. Even the most mystical folk don't really invoke right. that. That's that's really no other way to have that conversation other than in a metaphysical capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, the theory, though, you do see a good amount of uh, that kind of creeping its way in, and. Uh, that's not for nothing since uh, uh, this 
uh, in um, Hinduism, you have something called Adhyatma Vidya, which is uh, a Sanskrit word for the basically meditative mind science. And they didn't have really an, an easy analog for the word science uh, back when this would be something that was thrown around commonly mm. in Vedic literature and that sort of thing. Mm. But uh, very much there you do get in Hinduism and Buddhism as an extension of that or as a, something, an offshoot of that, you do get this somewhat experimental methodological approach to assessing the mind and you can't it's not science it's not scientific in the sense that you're not bouncing you can't only bounce your observations off other people so much you know you can't really confirm with another person whether or not you had an experience you can have them do something that supposedly was the same thing that you did and see if your experiences align so i have to say i just recorded a whole podcast with my fellow grad student Darren Spearman, and this is something that we got into. We discussed the empirical status of mystical practices and meditation versus the empirical status of science. And he's Mm -hmm. under the impression that these mystical practices can be seen as just as empirical as scientific methodology in a way. And I pushed back against that in the way that you're saying right now. Mm -hmm. Now they're not as empirical. So I just thought... (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a fundamental difference there. I mean, as soon as you communicate to another person, hey, I tried this loving-kindness meditation, I think I actually forgave, uh, you know, that person who wronged me 10 Mm -hmm. years ago. The elementary school teacher. (laughs) And someone who, she was really quite mean. (laughs) And someone else might say, even just expressing that to someone could influence their response to me. So I wouldn't say that it's scientific. Uh, science is a specific methodology yeah. with its own specific philosophy. And there's, there's, own, there's internal debates within science and how you can characterize something as scientific. You have your own approaches there, empiricism, positivism, constructivism, etc. Mm-hmm. But uh, with these meditational practices, they are, uh, I wouldn't I would hesitate to classify them as empirical, but there is certainly an empirical component to them where you're uh, you're trying to, uh, you're definitely assessing your experiences. You're definitely trying to build on something. You're definitely trying things and seeing if they work or not. There are goals, yeah. and to a certain extent, you you can trust your own internal experience. It's like you're experimenting with a sample size of one, yeah. which is not... Uh, you're, running ex- you're running an experiment within the context of your own mind. Yeah, yeah. Someday, if, I mean, we've talked before about... Uh, uh, individuals who have connected brains, who have yeah. some degree of connection between brain it's tissue. Trippy. Someday, perhaps we could intentionally interlink minds with the aid of one form of computer or another. And that might be a time when we could start assessing, scientifically speaking, these sorts of meditational practices. This is what I talk about. This is what I mean when some of the cognitive scientists who are giving a pushback are saying the technology isn't there yet. It's not that they aren't, that they're totally opposed yeah. to anything involving the scientific assessment of meditation practices, they just don't see us as having the tools required to do that just yet. That's one approach there. Perhaps we could introduce this distinction between what's called classical cognitive science and embodied cognitive science. Mm -hmm. So my understanding here is very limited. I'll just articulate my understanding and then you can expand on it. So classical cognitive science is very focused on computation and in particular, this metaphor that the mind is a software and the brain is the hardware, right? Mm-hmm. And it's focused on disembodied artificial intelligence. So this was kind of the first wave of cognitive science. The cognitive science research program followed 
this period of mind-denying behaviorism, as I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And cognitive science was really kicked off, to my understanding, by the likes of Noam Chomsky and Jerry Fodor in the late 50s, early 60s, I think. Mm -hmm. And there's this classical phase, which again was very motivated by this computation metaphor. But recently there's been a turn in direction here, and this new so-called phase has initiated called the embodied cognitive science phase, where people are starting to realize that, no, actually the mind is kind of an embodied thing that's more tied to our physical body in a way that the classical phase didn't recognize. It's not as if our minds are just softwares that can just be run on all kinds of different hardwares. Rather, our minds are really tied down to our sense organs and um, are interacting with the environment in a more intimate way than this first wave recognized. Do you think that's an accurate distinction between these two different waves of cognitive science? And second, do you think that this embodied cognitive science research program is becoming dominant in the field? All right, yeah, so first of all, I, yeah, that, that you put it quite well. I think that's a very fair characterization of the distinction between those two. And second, uh, I've been looking into that a little bit more lately, and it does seem that the embodied approach is uh, certainly getting a very strong foothold. I'd say it has a strong foothold now. Um, yeah, there is a little bit something of a paradigm shift happening in cognitive science now. I've talked it's, to some philosophers in my department about this since we had the discussion a couple of weeks ago, and they don't really know the answer to it either, just how widespread this new research program is, yeah. etc. Part of the issue is that cognitive science as a discipline is uh, so interdisciplinary that a lot of uh, people aren't necessarily able to engage with parts of the literature that are uh, maybe on a more distant side of the field than they're on. So if someone is really coming from a place of linguistics and artificial intelligence and another person is much more on the side of uh, experimental psychology, then they might not necessarily be able to speak the same languages to mm -hmm. one another. But um, the impression that I got uh, while studying cognitive science was partially due to the fact that uh, some of my lecturers were very much invested in it, but uh, mm. the impression I got was that it's very much taking a stronghold. And, um, and the more you read about especially recent finds between the interaction between uh, the brain, particularly brain development and, and other bodily systems that we might have thought were more isolated than they actually are, uh, there's very good reason to, to consider cognition as more of an embodied phenomenon. And this embodiment approach, as opposed to the classical approach, coheres with Buddhism, mm -hmm. right? And why is that? Yeah, well, uh, in Buddhism, taking the approach that uh, cognition is very much an em embodied process, is something that they sort of start with. It's some, right. one of the sort of fundamental uh, things that you're... you're, you're uh, going to from the beginning yeah. with Buddhism. So the interaction, uh, the physical component is differentiated. There's, there's something of a practical dualism in Buddhism that they're ultimately they're monists, but there's something of a, of a practical right. um, dimension there. And uh, with that embodied approach in Buddhism, it's it's been conducive to cognitive science. I mean, in Buddhism, there's a constant emphasis on the influence of um, the uh, state of the body on the mind. So they have their own kind of equivalence of uh, things like uh, um, 
nadi and um, other sorts of, I think that would be, yeah, that's the Sanskrit equivalent of the nervous system. I mean, not really, but they're talking about there's something bodily that's having some influence on the mind that's not only connected with the brain, and they'll talk about these other places in the body that they feel they've identified it as having some sort of influence. Um, Bindi would be like their equivalent of neurotransmitters. So they're not talking about neurotransmitters, but they're talking about there's perhaps these tiny physical substances in the body that are influencing us. Maybe they're thinking of it as uh, something like, I don't know, bile or yeah. flens or glands, you know, something that's, okay, you're on to something, you're not actually correct scientifically, but yeah, there are physical substances in the body that are affecting your cognition. So certainly we're aware that it's a simple observation to acknowledge that your endocrine system obviously plays an enormous role on mm -hmm. your state of cognition. If you, uh, if you uh, mess around with someone's hormonal profile, absolutely you're going to have an enormous effect on their cognitive activity. One question I wanted to ask you on this point is whether this embodiment approach is compatible with what sometimes is called substrate independence. Mm -hmm. Substrate independence is the idea that consciousness isn't tied to a particular substrate. So this is pertinent to a lot of different things. It's pertinent to discussions about the possibility of artificial intelligence being conscious, right? So someone who endorses substrate independence would say that it's, again, it's very relevant to this software metaphor, right? Consciousness can be implemented on a variety of different substrates. It's, it's implemented, it can be implemented on carbon substrates, the brain. It can be implemented on silicon, right? As long as you have the correct functional structure, then consciousness will come along for the ride. And it's not, there's nothing special about carbon substrate that allows for the possibility of consciousness. So I'm hearing what you're saying about the embodiment approach, and it seems to me that if you endorse this approach, you might be tempted to deny substrate independence. If consciousness is really a matter of, or is really embodied and necessarily embodied, is it possible to implement consciousness on to an artificial intelligence system, for instance? Oh, I, I've watched way too much Star Trek to ever reject <laughs> the very real possibility of artificial intelligence. Uh, and conscious and artificial intelligence. Conscious artificial, yeah, conscious artificial intelligence in, in our own futures. I think that's uh, uh, likely and in, inevitable at a certain point. Um, but I don't think it necessarily this embodied approach precludes that. I, I think that they can go... Uh, it's just the, it, the observation that the human conscious system appears to function in this manner that is not as independent from the body as we used to think doesn't preclude the possibility of a conscious artificial intelligence that is okay. more bounded in some sort of specific space. It's okay. really more with embodied cognition, the, the uh, reaction I most often get when I talk about it is, okay, I mean, well, obviously. Like, what's, what are you saying, though? Because that just seems pretty obvious. Like, yeah, that was... They had their own ideas back in the 60s, and now we know better. So the reaction I usually get is one of, okay, I mean, well, sure. Behaviorism sure. just still astounds me that that was a dominant. <laughs> <laughs> How could you be a behaviorist and deny that consciousness exists and the mind exists and the rest? Yeah. A related question on this embodiment approach is, can you be a proponent of this embodiment approach and think that there's a possibility of having conscious experience that doesn't involve any sensory experience. In other words, is consciousness tied to some sort of sensory modality, right? Because you, you could think that 
yes, fine, substrate independence is possible, and you can implement consciousness onto a different substrate, but consciousness still has to be filtered through some sort of organ. Well, it could be like an artificial organ, but some sort of sensory organ. And this relates kind of to meditation because you'll have people who enter these deep meditative states where they claim to experience pure consciousness or people who enter these sensory deprivation tanks, right? Consciousness just in the absence of any sensory experience, just kind of a pure state of awareness. Do you think that that is compatible with embodiment approach? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, as I said, I think that the embodied approach is more, is not so much about making one hard philosophical claim or another so much as acknowledging that prior approaches were perhaps a bit limited and perhaps okay. didn't acknowledge enough of the influence of the body on cognition. So it's right. more, there's more ways to look at it than we thought, but that doesn't mean this kind of, this notion of a, a, a consciousness in the absence of sensory input isn't possible. I mean, certainly when gotcha. you're asleep, uh, and you're in a, a dreaming state, then you're not really necessarily getting much sensory input. We do know that you Well, the visualizations that you're having, mental pictures that you have when you dream, that's a kind of sensory uh, input. That, right? that gets into what we were talking about a little earlier, though, yeah. about that debate of thought <laughs> as manifesting as a sense, right. whether or not uh, that callback to a visual experience. And, uh, Let's talk about that for a sec. Mm -hmm. So I've become really interested in what's called cognitive phenomenology and philosophy. It's the idea that, so proponents of cognitive phenomenology think that thinking has an experiential aspect to it. Like we're conscious of our thoughts. And furthermore, they think that this experience of thinking can't be reduced to any sensory experience. So it's easy to push back against this. You'll have some philosophers saying, no, we're actually, consciousness doesn't enter the realm of thinking. Like thinking is just completely non-conscious. Other philosophers will say, no, there is an experiential aspect to thinking, but it's just a matter of different sensory experiences, right? Inner speech, for instance. They might think you know, inner speech is just a matter of hearing something on the face of it. So it's a kind of auditory sensory experience or mental pictures that you have in your head when you think. That's a kind of visual experience. So again, it's a matter of just raw sensory experience. So you kind of have three camps here. Some philosophers will say there is no experiential aspect to thinking. Some will say there is, but it can just be reduced to other forms of consciousness, sensory consciousness. And then you'll have philosophers in this third category who think that no, there is a cognitive consciousness that is irreducible and that can't be reduced to any kind of sensory input. And I think Buddhists would perhaps endorse the latter. They would, because they, as you say, think that thinking is an extra sense. So if they think that it's an extra sense, it would seem natural for them to endorse this irreducible cognitive phenomenology approach. Now, I don't know, I'm not claiming that they're entailed to endorse that, or it follows from the Buddhist claim that they endorse this kind of approach, but it seems to cohere naturally with what they're saying about thinking being this sense that is separate from the other five senses that we typically think of. Yeah, uh, in Buddhist thought, it's there's only so many things that you can assert uh, with confidence because there is quite a bit of variety between traditions like with things like reincarnation and the uh, persistence of some component of you into another life. Like There's a lot of disagreement there, but when it comes to uh, 
thought as a sense, that's pretty consistent. That's that's fairly standard okay. uh, in Buddhism. So they would typically conceive of thought as something that's uh, uh, distinct from other uh, other sensual experiences. Now there is uh, certainly some leeway. The Buddha never went into a long discourse to try and defend whether or not thought of an image or mm-hmm. thought of a sound is all that distinct from the experience of that image or the experience of that sound or whether or not he yeah. felt it was fair to characterize that as you know half visual and half thought he didn't really get into any of that that was uh, I think that he would probably leave it somewhere around uh, yes there's some sort of thoughts that encroach more on the territory of other sense, uh, senses and then there's other thoughts that are more readily identifiable as uh, exclusive to their own sort of uh, domain, to the domain of thoughts, more abstract sort of thoughts, perhaps. Yeah, I'm tempted to endorse the third irreducible approach that there is an experience of thinking, and this experience of thinking is unique, and it can't be reduced to any kind of sensory consciousness. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. There are so many. As I've gotten more into Buddhism, I've recognized that there are so many aspects of Buddhism which correspond to different claims that analytical philosophers are making in the West. And there's really no, or at least not much, interaction between the two. And that's a lot of what we've been talking about, how there are people in cognitive science that are starting to try to build a bridge between these two traditions. Mm -hmm. And I think that we should continue building bridges because there is so much overlap. But a lot of people don't recognize the overlap, I think, because you have people in these different traditions playing different language games. They have different jargon, different terminolo- terminology for the same concepts, so they don't recognize that they're actually talking about the same thing. Yeah, you know, actually, uh, that reminds me of something I wanted to mention. So that is the fact that we uh, we often get hung up on semantics and philosophy <laughs> yeah. and cognitive science. Uh, it's all language. Is, it's it's representative of strengths and weaknesses. I mean, we don't have a uh, a institutional body that is going to say, okay, listen, all of you people need to relax. This is what consciousness means from now on. And if you think it's this, if you're talking about this other thing, that's self-awareness. And this other thing, that's uh, phenomenological experience. And this other thing is sensory experience. Mm-hmm. You all need to make sure you use the right one or else, you know, censure and punishment is imposed upon you. So that, uh, we can't do that, you know, and that's part of having a society where you can't you know, punish people for thought crimes, and also there's a uh, you know you have access to all these other people's ideas across the entire world. So there's representative of strength and a weakness. Now the weakness obviously is the disagreement that comes there. One of the uh, obviously Buddhists and Hindus and their philosophers and thinkers didn't have the internet, but one thing that they did have that was useful at least on this small order scale is that they had agreement. <laughs> within their own circle. So it's not that Shiva represents one thing in Hindu cosmology and you're only ever going to find this, he's, he means this and that's what he means. But within a particular uh, philosophical tradition, maybe a particular group of Shiva worshippers in a certain region, you would find overwhelming agreement, uh, overwhelming similarity of interpretation of their religious documents. And so that agreement can be very conducive to assessing things at a, at a high level. So uh, this is one of the strengths I think uh, comes with Hindu cosmology is that they have all these words, uh, maybe deities, concepts, the deities that represent concepts. So you could talk about Shiva as a destroyer, maybe as some sort of wrathful aspect that's simultaneously destructive and benevolent. Perhaps he, as uh, 
um, uh, various Buddhist deities might do, uh, slay your delusions. Mm. Or maybe you have Vairochana, which is, uh, let's say, Mahayana Buddhist conception, which is referring to like a sense of existential confusion. Or maybe you have Devandva, this is going, again, this is Sanskrit and Hinduism. This is referring to the, quite a specific thing it refers to, the uh, confusion of subject and object, uh, the sensation that there is a duality, but the monism that underlies that duality, that's Devandva. So that's, you can mm. say that in one word. Now, if I want to talk to you about that, I have to say, okay, so let's talk about the implicit sense that humans seem to have that there is a duality, but simultaneously, if we think really hard about it, it seems that there's a monism underlying all that, mm. and let's you know talk about the... Uh, confusion that can arise in that conversation. I have to say all those words, but if they just say dvandva within a certain tradition at a certain time, you just you just all know what each other's talking about. So it's a, a focal vocabulary, specialized uh, vocabulary that they can use. And this is one of the main problems I have with philosophy. It's just conceptual analysis, to my mind, is as good as far as it goes, but people just run way too far with this conceptual analysis, and now you have people arguing in sub 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 domain of philosophy that only 10 people will read and there's no substance to their argument they're essentially just quibbling over semantics it seems to me right and it's just not it doesn't seem like it's fruitful discussion and you have someone like Wittgenstein who comes along in the middle of the 20th century and says well actually all these philosophical problems that we're trying to solve they're just a product of language so for him it's not a matter of solving these philosophical problems that exist out there somewhere in the world. Rather, it's a matter of dissolving these problems by getting clear about our language and by really analyzing the, the grammar and the underlying logical structure of our language. When I first came upon Wittgenstein, my mind was just blown because I've always kind of had that sense that we're inventing these problems and these problems don't actually exist out there in the world. They're just products of these poor semantic tools that we're using, or linguistic tools. Perhaps that's one layer of the veil of Maya, another Hindu concept. What's there, Maya? Right? Uh, l l let me make a point before I talk about that. So okay. um, I do want to, I don't want to sound like too much of an Eastern cosmology apologist. I do want to point <laughs> out that when you have, there were these, these quibbles and these semantic quibbles and these linguistic games played, of course, in debates about uh, within Hinduism, within Buddhism, between the, the scholars and uh, religious folk. Uh, it's just that after, you know, the uh, ravages of time, what you're left with are the whatever stood. So you don't necessarily see the debates that were occurring. You just kind of see what, what came out of that. Mm. So... Um, in the same way that it's easier for us to characterize the 50s or like the, maybe the 60s and 70s as an era of cognitive science largely concerned with linguistics and artificial intelligence, right. we can only do that after the fact because there were all sorts of debates happening at that time that, you know, those papers don't necessarily, not every paper gets cited and, and, and becomes something that enters the canon of the literature. So there's a temporal element there that uh, I want to acknowledge. And Maya, that's, that's another Hindu concept Put very simply, it's referring to um, a linguistic barrier that you can't penetrate. So uh, I call this a table, and it doesn't become a table by the act of me calling yes. it a table. It is unnameable yes. stuff, unnameable physical reality that um, yes. is indistinguishable from the air around it. You extend down to, I don't know, go to the quantum level or something, and then you wouldn't even necessarily be able to tell where this table ends and where the air around it begins. 
One way I like to think about this is language in, like inherently generalizes things. The moment you apply a name to an object out there in the world, you're putting it into a category, right? You're like you're, you're putting it into a concept, and by doing so, you're disrespecting its irreducible particularity. So you can never actually accurately talk about something because the moment you try to apply a concept to something, you're abstracting away from that thing in a way. It seems that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the veil of Maya. If you ever look at like an Ohm symbol, Maya. Uh, the uh, you'll have there's a particular. Can we pull up an ohm or something? I'm surprised I don't happen to have an ohm on my person. <laughs> what is an ohm again? An ohm, the, the symbol, it's the fundamental ohm. symbol of Hinduism. Right. Um, okay. It begins most mantras. Uh, it's meant to represent the fundamental vibration, the, the sound that the universe makes. Is that the uh, when people go um? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Could you say briefly what the distinction is between Hinduism and Buddhism? There's oh, probably a lot wow. to say there, but just <laughs> there like, is a lot to say there. Um, as brief a summary as you can give about that. Distinction. I will give because um, I have no idea what the difference. I'm an anthropologist, is. so I always like to prioritize in a cultural anthropological explanation. That's what I'm trained to come up with first, so that's where the first place I like to go. Okay. Uh, Buddhism butted off from Hinduism at around 600 A.D. Okay, and uh, it happened at a time when the uh, the caste component of Buddhism, uh, particularly Brahmanism, the, which is, uh, there's Brahmanism is the um, basically a, the belief that the Brahmins are the elite caste. They should be on top. They ought to be on top. And who are the Brahmins? The Brahmins are, uh, it's the highest, that's a priestly caste in Hinduism, okay. the highest social caste, um, highly educated, highly wealthy, um, uh, keepers of specific rituals and ritual knowledge right. and for most of Indian history the Brahmins were dominant uh, so long as there was a caste system in place uh, then you have the lower order castes all the way down to untouchables mm. who would be considered unclean fit only for certain ritual tasks handlers of filth and that sort of thing and uh, within Hinduism, you have all this talk. I mean, I'm, I've referenced some of these things of you know, these compassionate narratives, and certainly anyone who's familiar with Hinduism, even in a basic capacity, is aware that, oh, you know, you're not supposed to kill flies or anything like that. Vegetarianism is very pronounced. All this supposed compassion, and yet the untouchables are occupying extremely marginal social positions. So Buddhism comes along and is somewhat reactionary against this, or explicitly reactionary against this. Okay. Um, and uh, they have they extract the philosophical and spiritual components from Hinduism that they feel are conducive to a meditative practice mm. and they remove the caste system from it. So okay, and who's they? The, the Buddhists, so the original Buddhists. I mean the the Siddhartha, uh, Prince Siddhartha is the, the Gautama Buddha is, is his Buddha name. So he's a prince and the story is that he is, lives in luxury. He's not his uh, his parents forbid him to see anything unpleasant. He doesn't know there's anything unpleasant in the world. So like Jasmine in Aladdin, he sneaks out of the Love palace. Jasmine. And he, uh, on the first day, he sees a sick man. And he, he tells his guide who's taking him through the city, what is this? Hmm. This man, is there something wrong with him? He's <laughs> expelling these fluids from his body. He seems right. like he's having trouble moving. Well, that's a sick man. Yeah. People get sick, it happens. The next day he goes out, um, he sees an old man. And he's like, oh my goodness, what is this person as their skin is like wrinkled and their hair is I'll white and yeah. their muscles appear weak and, and they have trouble 
moving. And, well, that's an old man. Everyone grows old, Prince. You, you too will grow old someday. And then the third day, he sees a corpse. He says, what? That man won't get up. He's just lying there. He doesn't seem to be asleep. Oh, that's, that's a dead man, Prince. Everyone dies. You too will die one day. So this is shocking to him, and he goes and meditates under a tree and becomes the Buddha. That's... That's the Whoa. story. Whether That's or not the original was, story? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. I didn't know that. <laughs> whether or not there was really Buddha, whether it's apocryphal or not, um, no one really knows. There isn't that huge amount of great evidence for there actually having been a, a Prince Siddhartha. But uh, Buddhism emerges from Hinduism, has a lot of philosophical, cosmological, and occasionally some ritual analogs with it. You, the Buddha, the saffron robes, like these orange and saffron robes, uh, are almost indistinguishable in many cases from the robes that the sadhu might wear. Sadhu would mean in, in uh, um, Indian traditions like a, a good man or a holy man. These are wandering ascetics, world renouncers, mm-hmm. who are not necessarily associated with a specific temple. They wander from place to They live in caves and forests. Um, they, they have nothing. They've given up everything. So they wear the yellow, uh, the orange and saffron robes also, typically. That would be their color. So there's no coincidence there. There's a lot of these... Um, uh, similarities between the traditions but Buddhism was in essence a reactionary movement against certain components of Hinduism that it felt were uh, internally contradictory uh, with that being said how are they different Hinduism I see as it's many things it is a religion it's a philosophical system it's a societal system Hindu Hinduism is a society building religion Yes, they have their philosophy and their cosmology. It's very similar to Marvel comics, actually, with the, these mm. entities that are themselves, um, the, the universes are components of their bodies, the embodiment of all sorts of beings. Sariden would be like one sort of Hindu concept. And very abstract terminology until you think of characters like Eternity and Infinity in Marvel. Maybe in Infinity War comes out, you'll yeah, see one some of these characters. Crazy. These cosmic level entities. It's just enough that, in my mind. Like, like, relax. This, this silhouette of a character that you see these stars and galaxies in, and I am Eternity, the embodiment of the universe. Okay, well that's very much like you would get like Brahman or something like that, or one of these cosmic level Hindu deities. You have that in Hinduism. But ultimately, there is an interest in building a society there. Kings, emperors, social classes, elites, uh, underlings, underclasses. So uh, it's, is it fair to say that it's political in a way that Buddhism yes, is not? it's absolutely fair to say that. Okay. Uh, Buddhism is uh, grassroots. It's crowdsourced, non-proselytizing. Uh, the Buddha himself was never interested in building a Buddhist state. Mahayana Buddhism, that means the universal vehicle. So that's the form of Buddhism where they decided, okay, let's take these teachings and let's kind of, almost like the Talmudic interpretation of the Torah, let's interpret them in such a way that we can, you know, fulfill our our ends here. We want to build a state. Mm. This tradition, we think it's really great, but it's not really going to, you can't build an empire off of this. Mm. How can you even have an emperor and a Buddhist cosmology? It would be like a pauper emperor. So, and that's kind of what you get with the Dalai Lama. Which is, is intended to be a pauper emperor. And you do get more of a political manifestation there. The Dalai Lama is a very political figure. But uh, the, uh, ultimately, that's the main distinction. Uh, Buddhism is not a society building political religion until you get those components, until you get Mahayana Buddhism, until you get like Sri Lankan Buddhism, which is also very political. Okay. Uh, whereas Hinduism at its core is necessarily has that component. Unless you go to the fringes and you talk to the sadhu living in caves, yeah. they're not very political. I can promise you that. <laughs> it 
So do you consider yourself a Buddhist? I would consider myself a secular Buddhist, okay. which is um, doesn't necessitate the belief in any sort of gods or anything supernatural. And anything that I might personally believe that encroaches on supernatural territory, I would uh, try to explain in terms of more scientific metaphysics. In so you don't believe in reincarnation? I would say that I believe beliefs? in a very soft form of reincarnation that has Ooh. more to do with... Uh, deconstructing the notion of you and I and self to the point where um, another manifestation of that existence could come about in time. Like maybe if someone simulates your consciousness down the line, then that could be you and in a sense you were reincarnated. It's just a matter of that pattern reemerging. emerging That's kind of like a technological reincarnation yeah, where well, someone can like capture the data of your mind and then reincarnated, so to speak, on a computer program or whatnot? Yeah, there's multiple places you could go. I mean, you could think about... A, but that's not inevitable. You uh, don't think that's necessarily going to happen. You think that could happen if we develop the requisite the technology. Like, it gets into such metaphysical territory that I don't see it as something worth defending. Because uh, don't most Buddhists think that... And again, correct me wherever I stumble here. They think that there is this reincarnation and it's like an infinite chain. So becoming enlightened is a matter of breaking out of this infinite chain of impermanence and reincarnation where your consciousness is just recycled into a different body each life. And that just continues indefinitely. Yeah, there's debate about that. There's actually quite a multiplicity of perspectives on reincarnation and enlightenment within Buddhist tradition. So the classical conception is that you attain this enlightened state and you escape the cycle of samsara so you will mm. no longer be reborn and this is always being raised as someone who is familiar with buddhism from an early age it always fascinated me when uh, i uh, started keeping the company of atheists and reading a lot about atheism i did identify as atheist for quite a long time uh, people were uh, they felt that okay so these these notions of afterlife and all that is really just people dealing with the fear of that black void that comes about when you die and i think to myself wow <laughs> you think that you automatically get that black non-existent void once you die oh my goodness that would be that's that you get nirvana for free that's like everyone automatically <laughs> they're just begging for I non-existence <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so that would be like that situation always seems striking to me because i was raised with this um appreciation for and someday if you work really hard and you through many many lifetimes you can finally attain that perfect pure black light of non-existence and then they're saying <laughs> okay, that's soon what enough. you get yeah that's what you get automatically so um i think uh, this idea just uh i just want to linger for a second on this idea of techno reincarnation it's very similar to this notion i forget where i heard it from of a techno religion how you have a lot of people like ray kurzweil the inventor at uh, Google, who thinks that we're going to achieve immortality within his life lifespan via uploading our minds onto computer programs. So you have this kind of movement in Silicon Valley and other places where people think that we're going to become immortal within our lifetime and we're gonna do this through the aid of technology. Digital uploading is one form you have other people who think that, I forget the guy's name right now, it's escaping me. He thinks that he treats aging as a kind of disease that can be cured. So you think you can reverse the process of aging. But I'm just looking at this and I'm seeing this almost as a kind of religion. Someone like Ray Kurzweil thinks that it's inevitable and their immortality, unlike other religions, 
immortality can be achieved in this lifetime <laughs> through technology as opposed to in another lifetime. I feel, you know, someone like Ray Kurzweil and others would be very tentative to call it a kind of religion, but it almost is in some circles. It's kind of like techno-religion in the same way that the idea that you'd articulated is a form of techno-reincarnation where you can reincarnate your mind onto some digital platform. Yeah. I just think it's interesting. Uh, let me. I got two thoughts on that. One is really just an anecdote. I read a good amount of science fiction, and one nice story that I read, I don't think many people would be familiar with this story, is a bit of a parody of Star Trek. So these travelers, space travelers, are in their starship going from place to place. They encounter this little weird object in space, and it starts, um, like wreaking havoc and teleporting things off and onto the ship Mm -hmm. and eventually they come to a dialogue with this entity and they realize that this is a uh, consciousness of what was formerly a member of an organic species in a machine now and this is how they travel the universe they upload their consciousness to these small devices they don't need atmospheric control you know they don't need life support Uh, they don't need any of that they don't need to haul these giant ships around the universe with their organic meat bodies and this being says oh my gosh I'm so sorry I was futzing around with your crew and everything you people fly your bodies around into space are you crazy I mean that's That's like so 2010 he's like angry with them (laughs) he's like you I I almost killed some of you oh my gosh I'm I'm aghast right here you have transported technology and you can do all this and you could uh, upload yourselves and you don't do, why are you flying around space in a box? You people are going to get killed out here. Right. As if, uh, like, uh, just how ridiculous the thought is of doing that. And it's kind of a, a play on this larger debate that's happened among, you know, in science fiction um, uh, about, and, and just kind of uh, cosmology generally, of the whether or not it's likely that perhaps most of the intelligence in the galaxy is maybe artificial nature. Perhaps biology is a, st- a stepping stone to Ooh. that peace and that when you see when you finally reach that artificial component we join the galactic federation finally and they're like oh hey you still got those bodies yeah uh, you'll you'll shed those soon enough that's just the way it works you know it's like you start monocellular multicellular you get a spine and then oh now then you know just you go to artificial it's just the way it goes so that's uh a a related argument from the philosopher nick bostrom i don't know if you're familiar with this the simulation argument Uh so his idea there is that Look, if our technology keeps progressing, right, we're going to develop the technological power to create these artificial, what he calls ancestor simulations, which are simulations that are extremely fine-grained and which are almost indistinguishable from our reality. And if we have in the future, if we have the capacity to produce these artificial simulations, there's nothing that's going to stop us from producing a lot of them. So it's like premise one we will develop the technology to produce these ancestor simulations. Premise two, there's nothing that's gonna stop us from doing so. There's not gonna be any law against it. We're gonna have the requisite desire to do so. So if you buy into those two premises, then it seems like there's gonna be, just as a matter of probability, there's gonna be so many more ancestor simulations than there are real realities. So as a matter of probability, it becomes more likely at that point that we're in an ancestor simulation right now as opposed to being in the real world. And of course, this thought experiment hinges upon the coherency of substrate independence, which we've talked about, right? Mm -hmm. If it's impossible to implement consciousness onto a different substrate, whether like a digital platform, well then we can immediately rule out 
if it's impossible rather, if substrate independence is false, then we can immediately rule out this possibility that we're in an ancestor simulation because we know that we're conscious. So any ancestor simulation, the beings that are in there, aren't going to be conscious if you don't think substrate independence is possible. So it hinges upon the possibility of substrate independence, and so does uh, this idea of techno-reincarnation and this techno-religion stuff, uh, the possibility of mind uploading in general. But I think that's just interesting too. I don't know how plausible you find Certainly, that argument. Uh, those Experiments, the varial behavior of light have, uh, in, uh, have spurred a lot of these conversations. If we were in some manner of simulation, then I think that perhaps uh, Hindu cosmology, more so even than the Buddhist cosmology, perhaps is, would be quite, quite on to something in a big way and that they're conceiving of these entities like, like you are the dream of some deity that's beyond your understanding. Essentially, yeah. and so then it just so happens. Okay, well, it wasn't. Dream. It wasn't exactly a Brahman, which is you know the full divine manifestation of all reality yeah. simultaneously, including those <laughs> humans are not capable of conceiving of. That's the stand-in for that simulation hardware that we happen to be operating on. That does so, cohere with Hinduism. Yeah, and also what you just said with respect to how if there is intelligence that pervades other corners of the universe or consciousness that they might be artificial in nature and there might be this galactic federation where all the beings are artificial transhumanists think that that's true right there this is a big debate right now with us merging ourselves with technology you have people who are called transhumanists who claim that morphing ourselves with technology is kind of the next logical step in our evolutionary process and then of course you have other people that are very much against it, right? You have people on the conservative side of the political spectrum who think that merging ourselves with our technology violates the sanctity of human nature, things like this. Mm -hmm. I think it's just interesting to think about that. Where do you fall on that side of the spectrum on that uh, issue? Well, I would, I have some sympathy for the technological singularity. I think it doesn't really matter if people are opposed to it. It seems to be it's the direction. It's either technology will prevent that from occurring uh, either by some sort of nuclear holocaust or whatever else we happen to come up with or it will happen I, I think that it's inevitable that that's going to be a direction we go in what is it's, the singularity uh, technological singularity uh, i know what it is but just for the listeners oh, explain yeah uh, it's referring to this increasing movement we have towards technological sophistication such that it will eventually become concentrated and rapidly continue in such a way that uh, we will vastly outstrip our uh, kind of natural capacity to keep up with it will just continue to advance technologically at an increasingly exponential rate. So you have we'll we'll create machines who are capable of recursive self improvement, and they can create machines that are even smarter than them, and so on and so forth. It gets beyond our control, and suddenly we have this just singular high super intelligence that yeah. is just beyond our comprehension. Yeah. Yeah, and then perhaps we will be Brahman or something to that effect. And there are wide disagreements over the timetable here, when the singularity, you know, people agree that, yeah, this seems like this is going to happen, but some people think it's going to happen in the order of like a decade. Mm -hmm. Other people think it's centuries away. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've actually, <laughs> I've, uh, I have... I don't know if, if people will sympathize with this, but the Borg in Star Trek, it doesn't seem so bad. It seems so horrible to me. I mean, maybe what's the Borg? The, the Borg in Star Trek are this uh, these race of beings that are cyborgs. So they've merged themselves with technology and they travel the galaxy, uh, basically 
capturing civilizations and assimilating them into becoming Borg. So, no, no, get off me! Damn it, I want to be an individual! And then they put these right. implants in you and suddenly I am a Borg drone. I am part of the one consciousness like that. Yeah, yeah. So maybe without needing to, you know, ravage other populations wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. You certainly wouldn't mind if you were Borg. And that could be the situation that we're in right now if that one hypothesis that we entertained at the beginning of this podcast is correct. If there is just one, ultimately one consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. Like the universe is just consciousness and we're all just kind of parts of this universe consciousness. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like that is exactly. our situation. Yes. We are the Borg. I, I mean, we're increasingly so. With the mobile devices, we have yes. four concentrated right here. Yes. And each of them is a this limitless gateway to the minds of other people. Yes. With, um, That's so true. Uh, I saw media. recently this movie, uh, A Wrinkle in Time, and uh, a friend, I was there with a friend, and I was jokingly telling this friend, uh, there was a scene where, this is from the book also, they're all bouncing this ball simultaneously, and it's supposed to be this dystopian imagery uh, on a planet that had given itself over to the it. So now there is no more individuality, and everyone's bounced the ball at the same time. All the mothers come out at the same time and call the child in for dinner. And I thought to myself, you know, I was joking, and I told my friend, you know, someday that's what we're going to be like. We'll all be one beautiful, happy, unified consciousness, and we'll look back on this disparaging imagery of that unified consciousness and think how foolish we were. You know, it's like we won't. It's, we'll look on it as we do interracial marriage now. Like, oh, those '50s movies were saying it was a bad thing, interracial marriage. Oh, how embarrassing. To, to think of it that way, we'll think of these depictions of unified consciousness maybe in the same way. I don't really believe that, but it's kind of my my joking little anecdote <laughs> there. But social media really is facilitating this process of all of us becoming one mind because we're all feeding into the the, the same social media channels. And I mean, you know, some a terrorist attack happens somewhere in the world. Millions of people learn about it at the same time. Do you think that was possible 200 years ago? Like, no, it took so long for news to travel and people have different ideas about what's going on. I mean, you know, we can get into a whole discussion about technology here. I think mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, technology has made us more isolated. It's kind of divided us into these political echo chambers. <laughs> so there's a lot of different yeah. sensible paradoxes Maybe here. Maybe better to save that for another time. Yeah, yeah. we've I already kind wanna, of derailed yeah, this. Yeah, I do want to bring it back to the notion of uh, this reincarnation, though. So yeah, bring when it, it comes to... So there's that technical option is one possibility. It does carry with it some philosophical caveats. Like you have to be conceiving of self, and I'm putting this in quotes, self or me or I uh, or my consciousness as more really aligned to a series of similar patterns more so than something continuous. Yeah. You're, I'm, I'm, obviously there's a disconnect at some point and I'm dead and I'm off and then some pattern emerges with sufficient similarity that I'm going to call it me. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you make a call at some point. How similar does it have to be? Maybe there's a, some, I'm not at all a theoretical physicist and I doubt theoretical physicists would typically, this is metaphysics really. Right. Uh, but uh, some parallel universe where virtually everything is the same and just, you know, there's one little tiny uh, atom somewhere in your body that differs a little bit in, you know, the nature of its rotation or something like that and doesn't even affect my cognition or anything. That's just another parallel reality that exists. Is that me? Well, does it exist at the same time as me? You know, when I die, if I'm dead, then is that another version of me? Are we existing contemporaneously with each other? It starts yeah. to get into that. You see why the, the uh, tantric and Vajrayana 
Buddhists have this approach of, okay, well, all things are simultaneously one. You're already existent in every conceivable form yeah. in, in some reality somewhere. Every version of you already exists. So they won't even bother to take the step of saying, okay, well, let's not even ask the question of how similar they have to be before that's you. Everything's you. Because let's just not even go in that territory because we're not going to win that argument is their approach. So this really is a question about personal identity. One view of personal identity is called the psychological continuity view, where what makes you the same person that you were five years ago, right? Like, like I'm completely different than the person I was five years ago. Why am I the same person? Psychological continuity theorists would say, well, you have the same, there's psychological continuity. It's the same fundamental stream of consciousness. And have you ever read Derek Parfit? No. So he's a famous philosopher. He just recently passed away. And he, very influential philosopher, he wrote this extremely groundbreaking book on morality and personal identity called Reasons and Persons. And he has this thought experiment, which is relevant to what you're talking about, I think, that involves teleportation. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you imagine this person getting on, and it's, it's supposed to prod at your intuitions about personal identity. So this is the thought experiment. You imagine someone getting on a teleportation pad and you know they scan the your brain and the, just the data from your brain and then boom you see someone pop out somewhere else who's just an exact replica of you who is psychologically continuous with you but who is a numerically distinct person and a lot of people just given that scenario they want to say oh yeah that's that's me maybe they're just two me's now but then he changes the thought experiment and he says okay well now assume that you step into the teleportation device and you're just completely annihilated, right? Like you're just sapped out of existence and then they create a duplicate of you and pop that duplicate into existence. At this point, people's intuition starts to change. Now I want to say, I've died. That's not me, right? Because like me, my stream of consciousness has now gone out of existence and you've just created a physical, functional duplicate of me who has all the same data in their brain and who might think that, like that even the duplicate might be psychologically continuous with me. They might be say like, oh, well, I was just stepping in the transportation device, now I'm here. But it seems like the real me has now gone out of existence. So hmm. the, the it, it prodding at your intuitions comes down to the fact that in the first iteration of the thought experiment, you wanna say, yeah, that's me. But then in the second iteration, where you merely stipulate that now you're zapped out of existence, which shouldn't make a salient difference in terms of personal identity, perhaps, you want to say, no, I've died now. Like, that's not me. Mm. Do you have any reaction to that? Uh, yeah, I, well, I would be on the side of that being me. Uh, that being me. Yeah, even with the discontinuous component. And uh, it would, it would, I won't really, <coughs> I don't want to even attach myself. I'm not even going to rigorously defend that because it's, uh, then you make two versions, and one is standing over here, and one is standing over here. I say, okay, yeah, they're both me, but every moment that they're... So one is standing here, one is standing here. We've already got a difference, so their identities are already diverging. And the longer they go yeah. with that divergence, and the less... But like at the moment those, of time, yeah, it might be. Yeah, so, but I won't really attach to that, because it does get into that territory where now I'm talking about me as a reasonably consistent pattern and I can't even get it closer than reasonably consistent like okay how consistent when does it stop being you when yeah. what if you change a little bit of when when you uh, do the transporter experiment yeah. you know you change or something goes wrong there's a minor incident and some neurons get shuffled around what if there's a major incident at what point between the minor and the major incident is that not you anymore like yeah. that's uh, those uh, I'm not really equipped to to answer those kinds of questions. I think it just does tend to be more of an intuitive call 
of uh, whether or not that is uh, me or my own identity. And Parfit's conclusion here is actually really Buddhist. I think the conclusion that he draws is, well, this thought experiment just illustrates that there is there is really no you, right? It seems so confusing because you're operating with this antiquated notion of the self that doesn't actually exist. Yeah, so. there's there's the Mahayana Vairochana, the existential confusion that I was referring to earlier. So you could, if if we were Mahayana Buddhist monastics and we were having this conversation, we could just say in one word, oh yeah, Vairochana, and you automatically know, okay, we're talking about the existential confusion that arises when you have these heady philosophical discussions between what is self and what is reality and what is me. <laughs> All of that is contained within this word. That it's like a reference to this whole conversation. So we've tied it back to Buddhism now. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we end? Um, no, I think we've done a pretty good job covering a lot of ground. Yeah, we went on kind of a tangent there, but I think we tied it off, uh, tied it back around with a nice bow. Um, sounds good. Thanks for coming on the podcast, yeah, Matt. This was really fun. Let's uh, let's do this again sometimes. We'll do.